All right, and we are back once again to explore faith, pursue grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. And tonight, we are going to follow up with the most recent Q&A that went live, Q&A number 10, in which we discussed the concept of the fate of those who have never heard about Jesus. That, that particular episode was titled, Will Those Who Have Never Heard About Jesus Be Lost? And in that, Kevin and I talked about the Good Samaritan and something that we had alluded to at the end of that episode or towards the latter, maybe half or third of that episode that we did on the Good Samaritan several months ago. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, I would suggest that you put this one on pause, go back and listen to the episode we did on the Good Samaritan. It's one of the rare ones we did that's actually fairly short. And then listen to Q&A number 10, in which we discuss this concept, will those who have never heard about Jesus be lost? Those two episodes set the framework for what we're going to discuss here. And whenever we had those previous discussions, we received word from from several of our listeners who had other follow-up questions and other things. And the common thread that ran through them ran along the lines of, well, you know, what what exactly does this mean for 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 serving God? What does this mean for the Christian life? Why live the Christian life? Why go and preach the gospel to those who are lost or who have never heard about Jesus if you know their fate is is secure anyway? And and that is I don't know, sort of a caricature of what those questions were. I mean, that's that's the gist of what some of our listeners were getting that. Um, but we talked about that in those episodes, but apparently there's still some questions that remain, which is why we're revisiting that idea and we're going to cover some of these things. So Kevin, I know you're stoked to to get into this. And I know that this is something that, that you and I have talked about back and forth through text and, and through email a little bit leading up to this. And I, I think this is going to be a really good episode. I think it's really going to help make things more clear for those that have had questions. Yeah. And, and we were able to receive quite a few questions on this and it's kind of ironic because this is a follow-up Q&A to a follow-up Q&A. <laughs> but this is this is what we're here for. And this what really excites me about this is these are questions that people have asked, which means that there's engagement with our podcast. And that's really what I like to see because this is all about truly exploring faith and pursuing grace. We want those conversations to take place. I'm so glad to see people really thinking deep about this stuff. And this is stuff that I'm still thinking on. And quite frankly, we're never going to really know all the answers. And that's why just chewing on these types of questions and being able to look at verses in different ways and trying to bring together the meta narrative of Scripture and just contemplate some of these things that really we may not have a whole lot of information on, but we're at least able to talk about it and theorize a little bit. And uh, Bethany, she also was talking to me about how much she appreciated you. She said, Lee's just really good at being able to, to disagree um, while, while respecting differences of opinion. And, and I want to bring that up because, Lee, you and I don't really see eye to eye on this. And that's another thing we want to let our audience know is our podcast is not about seeing eye to eye on everything. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're really just trying to learn. We're on the same team. We're just simply trying to work together to look at alternatives, to figure out some good possibilities, some good theories, some uh, other explanations from perhaps what we've always heard. And we're always in that stage of, of growing and changing and learning and adapting. And uh, so I hope our audience sees that and appreciates that as well. 
Well, absolutely. I think that's it's so crucial that we remember that we are on the same team. We're on Team Jesus. That's the team that we belong to. That is the team that we promote. That's what we try to pursue. Even though I'm an OSU guy and you're an Alabama guy, I uh well, what I a can, weekend. Uh, what a wonderful yeah. weekend. Yeah, how about that, right? <laughs> I mean, and, and here's the the irony is is I don't even follow college football. I really don't even care about it. And I'm in the heart of OU Sooner country. So most of my affinity for OSU is a more iconoclastic than anything else. But we are on the same team and we lose sight of that because so often, as we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, so much of the tribalism that exists in Christianity is predicated upon having the same opinion about a particular hermeneutic or a particular set of doctrine or a particular set of dogmas or practices or whatever else. And those can inform our faith. Those can enhance our faith. Those are more than adequate expressions of our faith. But if those comprise the entirety of our faith, well, then our faith is misplaced because it's not in Jesus. It's on the ritual. And that's something that we've talked about a lot. But even though we disagree on on this particular topic, and I'm not even going to say we fully disagree because you know, whenever you use that term disagree, it almost brings about this black and white ideology. It either is or it isn't. And it seems to the, the connotation in in the minds of so many people is is whenever you say we disagree about this, is it is there competitive? That, yeah, well yeah. well it is. It's adversarial and that gray area in the middle is often ignored. And and that's not true at all because the thing is, is I mean I track with you on a lot of this stuff. I track with you. I'm not able to go all the way to the same conclusion you hold at this point in your walk. I can walk with you on that path. I'd say probably about 80% of the way there, but getting over the rest of that hump, it's something I'm not fully convinced on in my own mind just yet. And it's that doesn't mean that I won't be. It may be due to my previous conditioning, as I said in those episodes before. I mean, I don't I don't know what the case is. I just know for whatever yeah. reason that's that's not a, those final steps to where you are. I'm just not able to take them yet. And so with this episode, what I have in mind, and I know what you have had in mind, is to further clarify that position and address some of the pointed questions that have come up since we did that last Q&A. So if it's good with you, I'd like to just go ahead and dive in and ask this question that one of our listeners sent in. Yeah, um, absolutely. If, if ready to get with it? Okay. So- in well, actually, the, let me oh, let me sorry. say yeah, yeah. let me say one thing uh, before we get started. Well, no, no, no. go it. ahead and go ahead and ask the question because I mean I know which one you're going to ask, and then I'll throw in a a little qualifier as well. Yeah, you bet, you bet. So once again, if you haven't listened to the episode on the Good Samaritan and you haven't listened to Q and A number ten, I strongly encourage you to go and listen to those so that this question will make more sense. So here's the question that that comes from one of our listeners. If God will judge those who never heard about Jesus based upon the law written on their hearts, then does this not imply some sort of works-based salvation? If not, why not? Now, that's a question that I hadn't considered whenever we had that previous discussion. This is something that didn't come to mind. And whenever we received that question, I know the thought that went through my head was, wow, that 
really provides a good degree of clarity to part of why I'm not able to move those last few steps to where you are. And even if this, even once this is addressed and once we talk about it, now I don't even fully know what you're going to say about this. I mean, we've exchanged some notes. I've I've glanced through some of those notes. So I'm going to be hearing a lot of this for the first time myself, but this is one of those questions that I think is a really good question to ask. When I'm talking, I hear a lot of what's coming out of my mouth for the first time too. So we're all surprised (laughs) sometimes. (laughs) It's a surprise. It's always a surprise on exploring faith, pursuing grace. So if God will judge those who have never heard about Jesus based upon the law written on their hearts, then does this not imply some sort of works-based salvation? If not, why not? Kevin, go. Take it away. Um, well, first of all, no, I don't I don't think so. But before I answer why I don't think so, I do want to at least grant that I believe that the Bible is oftentimes paradoxical. And I don't think that the Bible always gives one clear uniform, linear answer to every question. Now, By design sometimes. Yes, uh, by design. Some t- and, and I actually think that is how the Bible is written because there are different authors of Scripture who sometimes have different understandings. But sometimes, even within Paul's own writings, it seems that he is saying different things. And while we can try to harmonize it, the more we harmonize it, the more we I think unintentionally try to modernize it to fit our way of wanting this direct answer to every question when sometimes yeah. it's just not there. And I'll give you an example of this since we're talking about judgment specifically. I think even the concept of judgment and Christians being judged can be seen in scripture. Uh, th- there's this paradox that is presented because John five twenty four, Jesus says, whoever hears my, hears my words and believes them, or excuse me, believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but will cross over from death straight to life. So in John 5, 24, when Jesus is talking, he says, hey, if you hear my words, if you believe I'm the son of God, you're not even going to have to worry about judgment. And we also see Paul talking in Romans 8 about how there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So this idea of being judged and judgment, there's no need for it. Why? Because you've already believed in Christ and everything's good, you're just going to pass right from death to life. But then you come to passages like 2 Corinthians 5.10, where Paul says, We must all, talking to Christians, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And then you have John in the book of Revelation who says, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were open, including the book of life and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And of course, the faithful had life, and those who didn't, they received the second death. So, <laughs> are Christians judged or are they not judged? <laughs> yeah. And, and the reason why I bring this up is because there are passages that at any given time, especially in isolation, we can point to and say, well, this verse says this, and someone else can go to a different verse and say, well, this seems to say the exact opposite. And that's one reason why people do come to different conclusions. Now, there are ways that people have tried to explain passages like 2 Corinthians 5.10 and Revelation 20, Hebrews 9.27 that do speak of Christians being judged, in, in specifically or in particularly, in regard to their works. So the question is, well, how are we being judged by our works? And some have explained that as, well, that's not regarding our salvation. That's regarding our reward. Are we going to have 
mansion? Are we going to have a little shack? How are we going to be rewarded? Are there going to be degrees? And of course, I'm using mansion and shack just as as theoretical as examples. Yeah. yeah but, but the point is, is that some people do believe in different degrees of reward. And I happen to be one of those as well. So there are ways that people have tried to explain these. But at the end of the day, I still think that this presents us with a paradox, that there are some verses that teach Christians are not going to be judged. There's no condemnation. We're, we're covered by the blood of Christ. It's all good. We pass from death to life. And then there are other verses that explicitly teach, no, even Christians are going to stand before Christ, and even Christians are going to be judged based upon what they've done, good or bad, the words they've spoken, the deeds they've committed, the secret things they've done, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why you'll hear sermons that say Christians aren't judged, and sermons Christians are not going to be judged both ways. You, you hear it both ways. And the reason why I even bring all of this up is because I want to enter this conversation with great humility. I am not the authority on this topic, okay? <laughs> and when we are discussing things of the eternal, we're, we're discussing things that are theoretical because, quite frankly, nobody really knows. I have faith and I have a belief system, but I just want to enter conversations like this with extreme humility. And so with that said, getting back to the original question, if God will judge those who never heard about Jesus based upon the law written on their hearts, then does this not imply some sort of works-based salvation? I believe the answer to that question is no, and here's why. First, anybody can perform good works, but this does not mean that those actions are coming from the proper place or the right motivation. And so the point of emphasis that I believe Jesus made in the Good Samaritan and that Paul made in Romans 2 is not that these individuals who never heard are saved because of their good works, but because of their hearts. And the reason I say that is because I believe God is looking at these individuals' hearts, as he does all of humankind, and it, he's looking at the hearts and he's concerned with the heart, not just the mere outward action. And this is a reoccurring theme in the Bible, which I want to follow up to everything I just said, if I didn't just confuse everyone by presenting this paradox of judgment. <laughs> but people will say, well, what do we believe then? When the Bible does present what seems to be two competing ideas, what do we do? How do we choose which one's right and wrong? Do we just arbitrarily say, well, I like this one, so I'm going to go with it, or I was taught to believe this, so I'm going to go with it? What do we do? Do we just pick the verses that we like and say, well, these are my verses and those are your verses? No, I don't believe so. C.S. Lewis actually talks about this at great length when he's discussing Scripture, and he says that ultimately, when we're looking at the Bible, we have to allow the tone and tenor to tell us what the answer is. We look at things like the meta narrative. We look at things like not just one or two verses, but we look at the totality of the context of Scripture. Specifically, we look at who Jesus is. We look at the character of God as presented in reoccurring themes. And so, based upon that, we make our decision. At least that's how I believe a decision should be made. And go ahead, Lee. I'm sorry. No, I, I was just going to basically give you an amen to what you just said and just give a little bit of, of expounding upon that. You know, a high Christology, a high Christ-centered view of Scripture, or one through which Jesus is the lens through which the rest of Scripture is viewed, it takes those things into account and it does color how those paradoxes, the interplay between those paradoxes and how we interact with those paradoxes. Yeah. And that meta narrative, the overarching theme of scripture 
is the lens and should be the pattern. Christ should be the pattern that we that we look to emulate and that we look to follow in deciphering the text and what it means. And one of the things you said, I, I really want to comment on this, is you're saying no, that this does not, that if those who have never heard about Jesus based upon the law written of their hearts, if that does not imply a works-based salvation because anybody can form good works, but it doesn't mean that their actions are coming from their heart. I, I remember one of my cousins, and I, I wish I could remember which one. It's one of two, and I don't want to throw the wrong one under the bus. So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but I can remember one of our cousins, whenever we were kids, he was he was told, you know, not to eat cookies before we had supper. Don't eat this cookie before we had supper. Well, he tried to sneak one. He got caught and he got in trouble for it. And they said, don't you eat that cookie? He said, well, I won't eat that cookie, but in my heart, I'm eating all those cookies. And his behavior, yeah, he tried to sneak one. But after that, he didn't try to sneak another one. He followed the instructions of his of his mother, but he did so begrudgingly. He wanted that cookie. His heart wanted the cookie, but his outward behavior didn't necessarily demonstrate that. Yeah. And that that just seemed pertinent to what you were getting at in this in the with this concept that God isn't necessarily looking at the behavior, but he's looking at the heart. If someone has a good heart, well then it stands to reason that their behavior will follow what's in their heart, but that's not always the case. No, we've discussed that quite a bit in different episodes when we talked about obedience, and there are multiple passages in the Bible, both the Old and New Testament. You have Jeremiah 17.10, John 2.24, Mark 2.8, Psalm 44.21, 1 Kings 8.39, 1 John 3.20, Psalm 139.4, 1 Corinthians 1.11, Romans 11.33, Isaiah 55.8.9. 1 Samuel 16, 7 is really a popular verse where the text says that God looks upon the heart of the individual when looking for a king. Psalm 32, 11, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, Acts 13, 22, 1 Samuel 2, 35, Jeremiah 3, 15. You know, one of my favorite passages is the Passover with Hezekiah and how they were partaking of it contrary to the law, yet God accepted it because it was coming from the right place in 2 Chronicles of chapter 30. You have Psalm 7, verse 10 that says, God is delighted and saves all the upright in heart. Matthew 23, 25 through 28. Psalm 51, 17 says, God will never despise a contrite heart. I mean, these verses just go on. There, There's not just one or two. This is found all throughout the Bible. And, yeah, I also and that's, think that's, and that's not even an exhaust. And that's not even an exhaustive list either. Oh, no, no, no. They, I mean, these, these are just a handful that I was just topping out as I was putting this together today because there's just so many that are there. And I think that that's within the character of Christ as well. Of This is what Jesus is really after. So I know I've said a lot of stuff here in the last few minutes, and I hope I haven't just confused the crap out of our audience by talking about the paradox at the beginning there. But the point I'm, I'm wanting to bring up here specifically with this question or the point I want to make is no, I don't believe that saying that those there's going to be individuals who are judged who never heard about Jesus based upon the law written on their hearts. I don't think that that implies works-based salvation. Now, second of all, let me go ahead and answer this with some more information because I think there's another reason. As we discussed in the episode itself, I also don't believe that this somehow negates the need for Jesus. I still believe these individuals are being saved because of and through Jesus Christ. That is that soteriological aspect, the study of salvation that we discussed. I don't believe anyone's ever going to be saved 
aside or outside of Jesus. I think that anyone who has ever been saved, will be saved, is being saved, is going to be because of and through Jesus Christ. I don't believe there is any other way, any other name given among mankind or humankind by which we must be saved or can be saved. And so we must be careful not to confuse soteriology with epistemology, which simply is just a fancy word for the study of knowledge. We have to be careful with that. Just because we're dealing with people who may have not had the exact same knowledge of facts or the acceptance of propositional truths doesn't mean that they cannot be saved by Jesus Christ, especially if they did not have opportunity while they were here on earth. Now, third, and this is even, to me, the the biggest question we have to ask, if what I just said is not true, or perhaps if there's not some other alternative to understand this in such a way where it's not a works-based salvation, then what do we make of all the people uh, who died in the Old Testament who did not know God if this is not true? Okay, so if this isn't true and this is a works-based salvation, then what are we to make of all those people who did die in the Old Testament, who did not know God, yet in the New Testament, it says that they would be saved. So even if someone does not agree with me that those who never heard about Jesus will or can be saved post-New Covenant, well, those who never knew God pre-New Covenant still have to be addressed. So are we willing to say that they were saved by their good works? And I don't believe so. I think it works the same way as what we're dealing with post-New Covenant. I believe that just like those under the Old Testament, they were saved by God. And through a type of what I have called a baseline faith, as discussed in the last episode, we see that Moses didn't know Jesus, yet he was considered someone who had faith in Jesus in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26. And some, when it comes to the Jews pre-New Covenant, have called this faith through promise— And when it comes to the Gentiles, others have called this faith through conscience, based upon Romans chapter 2. And so the point I'm making is that even if someone doesn't like my explanation of those who have never heard about Jesus post-New Covenant, can they be saved with this faith through conscience that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2? If someone doesn't like that, they still have to address all of those who were saved under the Old Testament. Now, the the issue that immediately comes to mind whenever we talk about that is, of course, Moses didn't know who Jesus was. Yeah. You know, it, it could be argued that maybe Abraham did, maybe he didn't, depending on your perspective on Melchizedek, who Melchizedek was, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think it can definitely be argued that none of the patriarchs, none of those in the patriarchal age or in the Mosaic age during the time of that covenant, nobody then knew Jesus or who Jesus was, but they still had a law that they worked under. They had a law that they observed and followed from their heart. And and this doesn't negate anything that we talked about before any of the passages you mentioned in which the heart is examined, especially the passage there in 1 Samuel 16 with with Saul and and all that. But but I I think that it's it's important whenever you say that they didn't know God, what what you're meaning is, is they didn't have the full revelation of God through Christ Jesus that was apparent to them. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, well, yeah, maybe, yeah, I, I probably didn't explain that well. So I'm talking about both groups. I'm talking about the Jews who knew God, but they didn't know Jesus yet. It was, they were considered to have faith in Christ, such as Moses, but then also the Gentiles living during that time. 
okay. who they didn't know, have any concept of who the true God was, and yet they were still saved. There were still those who were saved during that time period. Well, there are people that would answer that who would say, well, of course, Kevin, they were saved because they did what God told them to do under the covenant. They did the feasts and the sacrifices and everything else. No, no, so I'm, of talking about the Gentiles. I'm talking about the Gentiles here. Oh, oh okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm tracking with you now. All right. Sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. So I'm actually, so I'm actually speaking about the Gentiles specifically who, cause usually what, what, where the distinction will be made is pre-New Covenant versus post-New Covenant. So yes. a lot of people will say, well, yeah, pre-New Covenant, the Gentiles could still be saved based upon faith through conscience, which is what Paul's talking about. In okay, okay. Two. I'm tracking with you. I, con- yeah. I Somehow I missed that entire thread when you were pulling it, brother. <laughs> well, That's well, my I, fault. I brought up the Jews as well. You know, I brought up the okay. Jews because my point with that is that even though they had faith in God, it was considered they had faith in Jesus, even though they didn't know who Jesus was because they had a faith through promise. So the Jews had a faith through promise and the Gentiles well, the had, Gentiles what had the faith through conscience. Faith through yes. conscience right. So, so my point is that if they were saved in the Old Testament, Gentiles we're talking about here, who never heard about God, never knew about God, if they were saved or could be saved, or let's put the word could be saved, through this faith through conscience, which I don't know anyone who would disagree with that, because even Romans uh, chapter 3 goes on to talk about that a little bit more, um, how those sins were passed over and those types of things. So if they were saved with this faith through conscience, were they saved by their works? And I well, think the no. answer is no. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I agree with you on that. And and I think Paul makes that point clear and, and the the question and to me the question isn't even what's clear what's unclear in terms of of the pre-new covenant age prior to the christian age because i, I believe that that there is a clear delineation in scripture you do have the israelites the hebrews god's chosen people that are obeying that law that god gave them and they're you know they they're children of God by promise, and then you have yeah. Paul making that delineation of those who have that law written on their hearts. I mean that's clear. The question is is how does that apply now? And one of the common questions that has arisen whenever I've I've talked to other people about this concept, I have good friends that I've discussed this with. I have a really good friend that you know they and I we've gone back and forth on on this idea and this concept and other things and and. They're, they're a listener to the podcast. They follow along. We've had good conversations. But whenever I've been going through this, this spiritual detoxification and paradigm shift, one of the things that they have shared over and again is that the only thing that upsets me about this hermeneutic and this approach to faith that you're taking is it almost seems like you can take all of Christianity and throw it away and just condense it down to this concept of just be a good person and treat people right and you'll go to heaven. And and that's a common criticism that, that comes up here. And in fact, one of our listeners even asked this question and, and they said, it seems that what you're saying can be reduced down to nothing more than just be a good person and treat people right. And would you say that that's an accurate representation of this particular paradigm? Yeah, yeah that's a loaded question, right? Because oh, of course it, it is. It, it, yeah, it, it, <laughs> it, it, it comes with some, uh, some, some presuppositions there. And yes, what... I have actually been taught in times past is this is just kind of this modern day humanitarian view of Christianity, where especially talking about issues pertaining to social justice, which unfortunately in some circles have actually been deemed a bad thing to talk about 
uh, social justice and and uh, caring about people in your community because we've made things so much about the spiritual we oftentimes neglect the physical and we don't even care about those types of things at least the way that we should simply because we've made everything so spiritualized i heard and, a uh, old preacher put it this way once we sometimes have become so heaven focused that we're no earthly good <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, I like that. I like that very yeah, that that's good. Because the the idea here of is Christianity just about being a good person and treating people right? Well, you know, an atheist can be a good person. Someone yeah. someone who has even heard about Jesus and rejected the message, at least here on earth, maybe they were taught the message by someone who wasn't acting very Christ-like. Uh, but for whatever reason, maybe they rejected it, and yet they're still a good person, and they know how to treat people right. We would say that that doesn't, by default, make them a Christian, or or does it? And, and that's that's the question I think that's being asked. Is yeah, that's well, the rub. What is a what is a Christian? If someone's a good person, do we call them a Christian? Uh, if someone's not a good person, do we call them a non-Christian? What what is the 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 definition? What is the characteristic here? And what what really are we talking about? So to put this question in context, this is being asked, I'm assuming, through the lens of the Good Samaritan, because that's really what kicked this whole series off to begin with. And going back to the story of the Good Samaritan, I think it's important first to remember what's going on there. The question was asked, first of all, what must I do to have eternal life? And then the follow-up question is, who is my neighbor? Because Jesus said, well, in order to have eternal life, you have to love, love God and love people. Okay, that's that's what he reduced it down to. And his response yeah. is, well, who's my neighbor? Who are the people I have to love? And then Jesus gave the story of the Good Samaritan. And the reason why I think that story is so powerful is because Jesus uses the Samaritan as the hero in the story, implying that the Samaritan has eternal life. Why? Because he loved his neighbor as himself, even though he didn't have all the propositional truths of Judaism figured out, quote-unquote, even though he wasn't like the priest or the Levite who— had all the rituals down and had perhaps more knowledge, he was able to love his neighbor as himself. And because of that, he had eternal life because of his heart, because of his compassion, because of his love for neighbor. So is that all it's about? Just being a good person and treating people right. And the reason why I'm hesitant to say yes or no to this question is because this almost feels like a trap question. I don't think people meant it that way. But it really depends on what the question means, because on the one hand, I would say yes, absolutely. Um, and Galatians 5.14, the Bible says, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping just one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So can we reduce it down to saying it's just about loving people? Yeah. <laughs> yeah we kind of can. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, from that perspective, yes. I mean, that's exactly what Paul says. If you want to know what the entire law looks like fulfilled, it's loving your neighbor as yourself. It really is that simple. Now, it's not simple necessarily in practice to do. But conceptually, it's, it is, but it's hard. Conceptually, it's, it's as far as the idea, as far as how to summarize it, here it is. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so the reason why every command, rule, instruction, ritual, custom, etc. exists in the Bible, I believe, is to help humans love one another more. And so when we begin to use the law, or Christianity even, let's just call it quote-unquote Christianity, if we begin to use Christianity in a way that harms, in a way that oppresses, in a way that discriminates, 
then we're no longer using it lawfully because according to Romans 13.10, love never does harm to a neighbor. And we see this being played out in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 through 28, where Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. In other words, the reason why these commands were there was to benefit us as humans. It wasn't to hinder us. It wasn't to oppress us. It wasn't to hurt us. It was to give us a day of rest, specifically speaking of the Sabbath day. That's what Jesus is saying is this was given to you as Jews to give you a day of rest, not so you could take this, weaponize it, and then condemn people simply because they're helping other people. <laughs> yeah. And, and and oftentimes that's really, unfortunately, what some Christians have made Christianity is nothing more than a way to feel better than other people, a way that they can condemn other people and justify their own actions. And they can say, well, I'm doing this because of the law. I'm doing this because this is what the Bible says. And what they fail to realize is that that command that they're trying to keep or that rule or instruction or ritual or custom, whatever they're doing, the only reason it was there in the first place is to help them love one another. And so when they fail to do that, they're no longer keeping the law. The Levite and the priest, technically, they weren't really doing anything wrong per se. They had duties they had to attend to from the context. But yet they weren't justified in that context. They didn't love their neighbor as as themselves. Thus, they weren't actually being Christ-like. They weren't actually keeping the law. Why? Because the entire law is fulfilled in keeping just one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you're doing that, according to Jesus, according to Paul, you're keeping the totality of the law. Now, God is the explanation for why we love and for what love looks like and how we should treat one another. And this is what Jesus said, the whole law hinges upon is loving God and loving neighbor as yourself. And people are like, well, yeah, but wait a minute, Kevin. There's more than just loving your neighbor. You have to love God. I believe, though, when you study that within context, first of all, you have to love yourself because you can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't first love yourself. You yes. know, in a world that teaches, especially our Christian society, that teaches um, self-denial to a fault, where we actually believe that we just have to put ourselves in positions. And we talked about this not too long ago. I'm not sure when these episodes are going to air, but when we did the episode on modern-day asceticism and the idea that we just have to deny ourselves pleasure all the time. It's all about deny, 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 when the gospel is about liberate, 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 liberate. (laughs) And people, they hear that, and they go, oh, you know, that just sounds like the world. You just want to liberate everything. Well, no, I I, want to look to what Jesus is teaching me. Now, if Jesus... And the world look closer right now than Jesus in some churches, so be it. But that's not going to keep me from teaching Jesus simply because some of the world right now looks more like Christ than some of the churches. Now, this like is, Christ. well, dude, this is kind of a bunny trail, but brother, I'd be remiss if I didn't jump all over this because this is, uh, I'm just going to be really frank. This is one of my pet peeves that irritates me to no end whenever this holiness standard or so-called holiness standard is, is promoted and anything that looks like quote the world is decried i know yeah. within the within pentecostal circles tv is a big big evil it's a big no no and in pentecostal circles it's becoming you know less of a talking point less of a doctrinal point but within some apostolic groups it still exists i mean i had cousins that didn't have tv at all they didn't have a tv in their house because of the evils and the dangers of TV. I, I went to church with people. It was about 60, 40, 60% had a TV, 40% didn't whenever I was growing up. 
And you see some of that promoted, not nearly as heavily within the one cut branch of the church as well. There are several preachers who make TVs and movies, even now to this day, a huge talking point. And and believe me, I, I get where they're coming from. I mean, there's a lot of junk on TV and there are a lot of movies that are not worth watching. I mean, I, I can agree with that to a point. But so much of what is harped on is this idea that it's worldly. It looks like the world. It looks like the world. And especially when you start thinking in terms of social justice, you start thinking in terms of racism, Black Lives Matter, you start thinking in terms of environmentalism. Most of those are just decried outright and not given another look because they come from a more left-leaning political perspective, and it's called out as being worldly. And that point that you're making about, well, if following what Jesus actually says is what you're calling worldly, well, then that's what I'm going to do. But this is the point I'm wanting to make. All of, all of that to say this, what we often forget is so much of Western society is built upon a foundation of a Judeo-Christian ethic to begin with. Yeah. So if we start seeing overlap with some of these talking points with what's called, quote, the world. That really shouldn't come as any surprise to us. I mean, how many times have you heard it said that America is a Christian nation? I mean, you hear that over and over again. America is not a Christian nation. There's no such thing. (laughs) There's no such thing. But the thing is, we're talking about a spiritual nation, but yeah. Well, but the founders set it up to not be a Christian nation. America is not a Christian nation. It's not a Jewish nation. It's not a Muslim nation. It is a nation that respects freedom of religion and allows people to live their faith in in the way they want to live it. It's so wonderful. (laughs) According to their dictates. Exactly. That's what literally makes it the greatest country in the world. But listen, man, there is no, there's, there's, I can see why people think that though. Yeah. Because that Judeo-Christian ethic is the backbone upon which that is built. So to say that, oh, well, it's the world on one hand and the church in the other, if we start looking at the scriptures and we see a lot of what Jesus is teaching and promoting and what the scriptures teach and promote aligns with, quote, the world, one, it shouldn't surprise us because of the the westernized Judeo-Christian ethic that serves as the substrate for which so much of this is built upon, but also number two, that also presupposes in and of itself that the position, the quote, the church takes, that that is automatically in concert with what Jesus wants, but that couldn't be further from the truth in a lot of cases. Yeah, well, it's the age-old false dichotomy that if the world's teaching it, then it must be wrong. Yeah. And when Jesus comes along and he starts to teach and he starts to act the way he acts and he starts to live the way he lives, guess who is accusing Jesus and his followers of not acting like quote-unquote godly people. It was the religious people, right? Yeah. It was, it, yeah. So this isn't anything new that when, you know, Jesus, Jesus didn't shake up the world as we know it, quote-unquote. I'm doing air quotes. Nobody can see this because it's a podcast. But Jesus shook up the church. And when I say the church, I understand the church was established later. But I'm saying as far as the Jews were were. Uh, understanding it at that time, the religious world, God's people at that time, that's who Jesus was shaking up. And it was because of the way that he lived his life, the causes he was fighting for. Um, In fact, I think of Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. This wasn't really a Bible verse that I had to memorize growing up. I wish it was, and perhaps other 
Christians feel different. Maybe this is their experiences that they did memorize this verse. But Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he took the scroll and he rolled it up. That's what Jesus said he's here to do. So when we talk about the good news, it, it almost as if we we have to, there's something in us, at least those of us who grew up in a very conservative, legalistic vi- environment, there has to be almost this combative element to it. Like, oh yeah, yeah. we, we got to stand for something or we'll fall for anything. You know, it's this like... It's we, us we, against them. Yeah, we, we got... It's adversarial. No, the gospel's more than liberation. The gospel's more than this. The gospel, well, what is it then? And this is what I ask people. What is the gospel? If, if the gospel isn't liberation, if the gospel isn't setting the captive free, if the gospel isn't bringing good news to people, if the gospel isn't loving one another, what is the guy? Is it going to church every Sunday? Is it taking a sip of the Lord of, the, of grape juice? Is it putting a $5 bill? What is Christianity to you? And that's where we really have to break this down and say, well, what do we really believe? Like, what is the gospel? And while that should be such a simple question to answer, even for me, that was a difficult question for so long because the gospel yeah. means good news, but yet there's really not a whole lot of good news in the good news that I was taught. But well, when you likewise, go, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, but when you look at what Jesus taught, This was the good news. And so whenever someone says, well, is this not more like just being a good humanitarian? Is it it's it's when we say those types of things, we're trying to set ourselves up for failure to believe that being good is almost a bad thing, that having compassion and and fighting for causes that help other people other than me and my my type of people my culture groups quote unquote and i'm putting once again all this in quotations there have been so many air quotes in this yeah, episode like, just, like, just, my fingers are just going crazy here but you know like like we have to understand that the reason why jesus kept emphasizing people is in is because it is about people and we have been taught so long, well, the, the gospel's not about you, it's about God. The gospel isn't about humans, it's 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 about him and all this type of stuff. You know what Jesus said? G, G, God says, I'm going to come as a human. You talk about being a humanitarian? God came in flesh to be around us. That's how much he loves us and to show us how we're to treat one another and to show us the kind of life we are to live. So to say, is it just about being a good person? I would turn that question around and say, well, what is your Christian? Is it just about dot, dot, dot? I don't think Christian is just about anything. I believe ultimately it's about the way that we love one another. And so if we can reduce it down to anything, I'm going to reduce it down to what the Bible says. I'm going to reduce it down to what Jesus said. James 2.8 says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you have fulfilled the law, you're doing right. Romans 13, 10, love is the fulfillment of the law. And of course, the passage I just quoted earlier in Galatians 5, 14, the entire law is fulfilled and summed up in one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So yes, if we want to reduce Christianity down to quote unquote, nothing more than just being a good person and treating people right. Yeah, I I would say that's what, how else are you going to argue? I mean, I, I don't, I don't know what else I could say other than the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, at the risk of beating a dead horse, it's that implication that is baked into this idea or this question is 
the implication is, is of course there's more to it than that because that's what we've been taught. We've there been has taught to be, yeah, there has to be that. more to it. Yeah. You know, there, there has to be more to this and that's because the emphasis so often has been on epistemology. It's been on the knowledge you have or the knowledge you lack. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's so, man, whenever you put it in those terms, it just, it seems so much more clear. It just seems so much more clear that, yes, this is the ultimate imperative to love well. Love matters more, as our friend Jared Bias is fond of saying. And he even wrote a book about it. It's a good book. You guys should check it out. But so often what's baked into that assessment or that assumption is that what I know has to matter. The practices that I engage in every Sunday have to matter. If I use or if I choose not to use instrumental music in my worship, that has to matter. If I choose to use instrumental music in my church, that has to matter. My perspective on baptism has to matter. My perspective on the Lord's Supper and what it means and how it's observed has to matter. Whether or not I wash feet as a part of my my service, my church service, my worship service, that has to matter. Whether we have a praise team or a cappella or a choir or a male or female pastor or preacher or male or female elders or shepherds, all of that has to matter. And the reason why it has to matter is because I've put so many of my eggs in that basket and I have alienated so many of my brothers and sisters in Christ that look at things and have a different set of dogmas and circumstances than I do. I have done those things. So it has to matter. If it doesn't matter, then I've done all that in vain and I have focused on the wrong thing. And for a lot of people, that is a really hard concept to understand. And I think that's the strongest point that we can take away from that that lesson of the good Samaritan that Jesus gave is and one of the things you pointed out and dude, I've thought a lot about this since we, since we recorded that episode and I, and I definitely track with you more than on the good Samaritan than I did. I, I think at that point I was about 50% there with you and I'm closer to about 80% now, <laughs> but, but whenever you said that, you know, Jesus is telling this story to answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Samaritan did that, which, inherited eternal life because he fulfilled that royal law of loving his neighbor as himself. It wasn't based on the knowledge the Samaritan had. Like you said, Jesus said in John 4 that Samaritans don't know who they worship. They don't have the epistemological foundation to allow them to gain salvation if salvation is based on knowledge. But in spite of that lack of knowledge, he is still able to fulfill that royal law. And I think that considering that and knowing the, how that, how loaded that question is, something else has to matter. That's where that's coming from. And it's because I, it's, I think it's an example of a latent sunk cost fallacy. I've spent so much time thinking this and promoting this. It has to matter. And I want to be careful because sometimes I can get very hopped up when I'm talking and I, I want to be very careful. I'm not trying to discredit when I was talking about taking grape juice and putting a $5 in. I'm not discrediting giving money. I'm not discrediting taking of the Lord's Supper. I'm not discrediting those things at all, okay? So I would just, for those listening, I don't want people to say, oh, no, those things don't matter. I believe that each person, especially as we experience faith in God and our convictions, God's looking at the heart. And that's, that's my underlying point here, is that even if you look at the Old Testament, God accommodated things such as animal sacrifice, not because he cared about animal sacrifice, but because he cared about having a relationship with his creation. 
that's why he allowed humans to participate in animal sacrifice. We come to the book of Hebrews and realizes that was that was never realized that was never really what God desired, but that was the way humans related to God during that time period. So God accommodated their understanding. And I think the same is true today. If we have rituals today, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. If if we do certain things today that other Christians don't do, that doesn't mean that we're bad for doing those things, but it doesn't necessarily mean other Christians are bad for not doing those things. But if that's how you're expressing your faith and it's coming from a pure place, it's coming from a, a good heart, then that's what God ultimately desires. And so I'm not trying to discredit these rituals, these these uh, customs, these instructions that were oftentimes cultural and that have manifested themselves in different ways. What I'm saying is, is that those are not the end. Those are the means so that we can have a relationship with God. And everybody's going to relate to God on different terms and differently. Even those who have grown up very similar, still, based upon their personality, based upon their experiences, based upon their knowledge, they're going to understand and experience and relate to God in different ways. And that's going to be manifested from, differently from person to person. The point is, is that ultimately all that's coming from where? From the heart, or at least it should be. That's what God's yeah. interested in. And so to say, is loving people really the only thing that matters? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I I, I do. Yeah, I think I really, and, and I mean, I don't want people to take me out of context here, so I hope they've heard everything else I've said. But if Paul can say everything, the whole law can be summed up in one command, love your neighbor as yourself, then I, I, I feel confident in repeating that, if I if Jesus said that the whole law can be reduced down to loving God and loving your neighbor, then yes, I believe I can say that. Well, what if someone doesn't know God? Well, Jesus addressed that in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He did, They didn't know God. They didn't really know who they worshipped on the same level that the Jews knew, that those who were fully Jews, they, the Samaritans didn't have that knowledge, yet they still fulfilled the law. Why? Because they love their neighbor as themselves. Now, that's just where I'm at. I don't have any other way that I can personally understand that at this point. I've I've looked to alternatives. I used to understand things differently, but now looking at the whole meta narrative, looking at the parables, looking at these statements within context, looking at these reoccurring themes, I believe deliverance, freedom, an easy yoke, and a burden lifted is what the gospel is all about. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight through thirty, "My yoke is easy, my burden is light," and that freedom is to manifest itself in love. And this is what Paul said in Galatians five thirteen. He says, "You were called to freedom. Don't use your freedom as just an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another." And that's why the fruit of the spirit is so important: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. That word faithfulness, by the way, some people have translated that to say, oh, that's faithfulness to God's laws. The word faithfulness simply means fidelity or to be trustworthy. That's what it's talking about there. When people look at you, do they see that you're a faithful individual, that you're a trustworthy person? Are you gentle? Do you have self-control? Do you love? Do you have joy in your life? Do you have peace? Are you a patient person? Do you have kindness toward one another? Are you a good person? That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. And even the characteristics of love found in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, it's not proud, doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongdoings, doesn't delight in evil, it rejoices in the truth, it always protects and trusts and hopes and perseveres. Very similar, when you look at the characteristics of love with the fruit of the Spirit, we're, we're talking about the same type of of characteristic tra- or char- of character traits here, 
And so I, I understand where the question's coming from because, as you pointed out, people want it to be more. And in, in Christianity, there's always been this idea of, well, I'm already sacrificing more, so, so what I have done should matter. And it does matter. But just because it matters to you and just because it's come from a good place in your heart doesn't necessarily mean that that's where someone else is in their spiritual life, that they can still be loving God. And especially someone who has never actually heard of Jesus, someone who has never conditioned, someone who never had the opportunity it goes back to Romans chapter 2. I don't know how else to explain that. When Paul is talking about individuals who do not know God, but yet they they have faith through conscience, and they do the best they can, they're not saved because of their good works. They're saved because they're still following that higher calling of love. They're still bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And I use that Helen Keller example, I believe, a couple episodes ago in the, the story of the Good Samaritan when she said, I always knew that there was something out there more. I just didn't know the name. <laughs> and, yeah. and and I love that because, and because it, it just shows that there are a lot of people out there given the opportunity, of course they would they would follow Christ. And I think Jesus is actually teaching they already are following me. They just don't have all the understanding that you do. And in fact, in some ways, you may have the understanding, but you're not following me. They don't have the understanding, and they are following me. And if that's not one of the points of the Good Samaritan, I don't know what is. I think that's a huge point in the Good Samaritan. And man, that puts a super fine point on it, especially what you just said. You know, there are people that maybe don't have all the knowledge, and they're following Jesus. And there are other people that maybe do have a lot of knowledge, and they're not I firmly believe that for a long time I fell into that camp and maybe I'm not giving myself as much grace as what, you know, God, you know, would give me or extend to me. I mean, I don't believe that I wasn't saved in that period, but I know whenever I was really fundamentalistic and legalistic, I definitely wasn't operating from a place of love. I yeah. definitely wasn't operating from a place of grace or mercy. My judgment was definitely triumphing over my mercy. And I leaned in heavily to that particular perspective because I knew a lot of things about God. Yeah, I knew a lot of things about the Bible, or I thought I did anyway. And I really believe that I fall into that camp. And man, it's... it it really does something to you whenever you can look back and see where you were and where you've came from it. Sometimes it can get heavy and sometimes yeah. those pangs of regret can set in. And that's why I need the gospel. That's why I need the good news. That's why I need that easy yoke. That's why I need that light burden because sometimes that past can burden me down and it's hard to realize it's hard for me to realize sometimes I'm speaking purely for myself at this point. I'm being a little vulnerable here. It's, it, it can be difficult, man. It's, it's not easy at all. Yeah, no, you're right. And I, I want to jump back uh, for a couple points that we had talked about earlier, because I want to circle back around to these. Let's do the, it with the first question. Um, because I feel like I, you know, I, I don't know if that's satisfactory to the person who asked it, but that that's where I'm at as far as is this just about being a good person? And that question typically is asked in a sense of, well, it's got to be more. And I, I simply, um, when we understand what it means to love one another as ourselves, no, I, I think that is it. I think that's exactly the message that 
Jesus is trying to get out there is it's this is that we live in freedom and that freedom is to manifest itself in our love toward one another. And we know we're loving one another when we're not harming one another. Uh, yeah. Love does no harm. So if ever I see that my interpretation of law is putting someone in in a harmful situation, it's oppressing them. It is um, being used in a way to show prejudice towards someone else then yeah, I, I think that my interpretation needs to be abandoned. And I think that I need to follow the higher calling of what the Bible can be summarized in one love, one command, and that's love your neighbor as yourself, and that love does no harm. But, any, but going back to the first question, one of the questions in conjunction with that that I usually get asked, and that I used to ask myself a lot, and still do actually, is what is the point then of sharing the gospel with people? Yeah. If if people are going to be ultimately saved or can be saved, then why share with them the gospel at all? I mean, if, if God's going to look at their heart, then what's the point anyway? Okay, so I think that's a good question. And I actually, I, I have answers, but they're just my own musings. Basically, I believe that the gospel is the best news that one can ever hear when put in its proper place. And why would we not want to tell anyone about that? And we've already given that as one reason in one of our former episodes. So go back and please listen to that if you haven't. But that question I don't think is fair because we can ask the same question about the Old Testament. If Gentiles could be saved under the Old Testament without ever becoming a Jew, then why were the Jews out trying to convert people to Judaism? Mm. And mm. So, you know, what was the point? If, if they could be saved anyway in their ignorance, then why were they out at times telling others about God and teaching and preaching as we do see happening from time to time? So that question really, I think, is an unfair question because we could ask the exact same question about the Old Testament system. And here is where I'm going to get a little deep, and I may lose a few folks, and this may have to be another episode for a different time. But I believe in progressive revelation. I believe in trajectory theology. And I believe that what we see throughout history, and I'm once again, I'm going to write all about this in my new book, and uh, that's going to go into a lot more detail than I am tonight. But really, the Old Testament and the New Testament, I think the New Testament is more or less, there. it's this mirror, right? And it's this unfolding story. So even in, even in the Old Testament, we see that Jews, Jews could hear the message. Excuse me, Gentiles could hear the message, and they could, quote-unquote, convert, become a proselyte, and they could be living under the Jewish system, enjoying the understanding of who God is. And that was actually a question in the New Testament when Paul was, was answering the uh, Christians. Well, what was the point of the Jews then? What, what was the point of the Jews having the, you know, the, this information? Like if everyone was ultimately going to be saved anyway, what was the point? He goes, well, they were first entrusted with this. They had, they had that, that knowledge, that understanding, that relationship, that those who never heard about God, they weren't able to enjoy that yet. But it didn't mean that they were not saved, nor did it mean that they weren't eventually going to be saved. Now, if the New Testament is a reflection of the Old Testament, is heaven going to be nothing more than a continuation and a reflection of the New Testament? And let me, let me give you a little example of what I'm talking about here. So it's my conviction. I've already talked about this a little bit, but I believe that ultimately everyone 
will either, and I'm putting this either or here because I'm not sure exactly where I land on this, okay? But I believe one of one one or the other right now, okay? I believe that ultimately everyone will either A, be saved, period. And when I say be saved, period, I believe that not necessarily in this life, but they will have an opportunity in the life to come to follow Jesus, to have that knowledge of who Jesus is, to have that relationship with them. And those people who we would say were good-hearted individuals will be able to, to be saved and have that relationship. Or I believe that everyone, um, everyone will ultimately be saved. Okay, so I believe either everyone will have an opportunity to be saved, and so only those who are completely stubborn, who really don't want to follow God, those would be the only ones who wouldn't have eternal life. But I lean more toward I believe everyone will be, because we are all created in the image of God, and when given the proper opportunity and the proper circumstances and being approached within the glory of God, who would not want to be a part of that? And so I believe that that is where everything is ultimately pointing in the the restoration and the redemption of all creation, including all humans. And by the way, this was the view of many early church fathers, including uh, Gregory of Nyssa, who was the one of the main contributors and editors of the Nicene Creed, which most churches today and for the past you know, 16, 17, 1800 years or uh, 1600 years, 1500 years, uh, have have been quoting the Nicene Creed, have called that church or, orthodoxy. And he was he, he was a believer in the restoration of all things and the salvation of all humans. Um, Origen was another Christian universalist, and uh, Clement was as well. So you, you have several early church fathers who believed in Christian universalism. That's not my only argument or reason. I'm just saying that this isn't a new concept because I've heard, oh, this is all postmodernism, just fluff, and nobody it's ever new age junk. No one ever believed that. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. it goes back further than you think. That's just not true. So I say all that, I just want to summarize one more time. I believe that ultimately either A, everyone will be saved because they will see the glory of God, they'll have an opportunity, and they'll follow, uh, follow Jesus. Everyone will be redeemed. Or B, they will, uh, everyone will at least have, have the opportunity, and there may be some, I don't know, who still choose not to follow God. But I do believe everyone will at least have that opportunity. Now, the, the reason why I think everyone will ultimately be saved is because of the Bible, <laughs> because of what I read in Scripture. Um, I believe that Paul actually teaches this. I believe he makes this argument in Romans eleven six. 6. He says, if we're saved by grace, then it's no longer by works, otherwise grace wouldn't be grace. And within the context, he's talking about the remnant. He's talking about how there's always this remnant saved. And we always think of the remnant as this few, right? We think of it as a small group. And earlier, uh, Paul had made mention of how God can show mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy on. This is in Romans 9.15. He says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And a lot of times Calvinists, which this could dovetail into a whole other conversation about Calvinism, but which I believe is is one of the most toxic doctrines in Christian, perhaps even more toxic than legalism. I, I really believe as much as I believe legalism is like way up there. I think think uh, predestination, at least um, the type of predestination where God can just arbitrarily choose who's saved. I think that is one of the most dangerous doctrines and one of the, the most toxic. Um, erroneous beliefs that have been formed out of Scripture. But people use this, Romans 9.15, to teach that. 
They go, well, Bible clear, clearly says it. I'll have mercy on who I have mercy. I'll have compassion on who I have compassion. This isn't restricting who God's going to have mercy on. It's extending who's going to God's going to have mercy on. Because his point is, it's not just about the Jews. It's also about the Gentiles. Because here the whole point is, wait, we thought you had to be a Jew to be saved. We thought you had to be a Jew to be saved. How, you know, what do you mean? Well, you know what? If God wants to have mercy on the Gentiles, he can have mercy on the Gentiles. And, and he's going to have mercy on the Gentiles. That's his point. So the, the theme of the whole book here, or one of the themes, there's a lot of themes in Romans, but the one of the themes is that Jews and Gentiles are all God's people, and one's not better than the other. But then Paul caps it off by ending it with how God's mercy operates. And this is what he says in Romans 11, 32 through 33. We need to start teaching this at Vacation Bible School. For God has consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. So Paul ends by saying, okay, all have been consigned to disobedience. We have all sinned and fallen short. We all know that passage, Romans 3.23. Yeah. But guess what? As many as have been disobedient, that's how many God's mercy is going to be upon all. And he further continues this idea. Paul says in in, uh, Romans, well, actually, there's a couple of passages here um, that I want to cross-reference, but Romans 5, but then also 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Paul says, "For For as in Adam all have sinned and all have died, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And then Paul makes the same point in Romans 5, where um, in Romans, how he talks about the same amount of people through Adam who sinned will be saved through Jesus. And wherever sin abounded, grace abounded more. <laughs> and so here's what's interesting, though, in with this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. The grammatical structure of this statement is vital because this passage does not say that all in Christ shall be made alive. But it says that all shall be made alive in Christ. <laughs> so this is this is potent stuff here because I was taught, well, only those in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. But what this is saying here is that it is in Christ that all shall be made alive. Not only those in Christ, but in Christ, all of those, all everyone shall be made alive. And then also Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, talking about Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things, things on this earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross to reconcile all things. And so I say, I brought that Old Testament, New Testament illustration to say that if we look at the Old Testament, I believe that a lot of Christians in the new heavens and new earth are going to be like a lot of Jews were when the new covenant came rolling out. They're like, wait a minute, God, these Gentiles, what are you talking about? How can you save all these Gentiles over here? They weren't part of us. They didn't know you like we did. But God's mercy was upon them. And when we come to the new heavens and new earth, where I believe the redemption of all things will happen, I believe there's going to be some some uh, epistemological education for Christians too there, because we're going to say, wait a minute, God, <laughs> wait a minute. They weren't a part of us. They, they, they did. No, no. How can they be saved? And we're going to understand that, that it, perhaps, I don't know if we're going to fully understand because the Bible calls it insearchable, but are unsearchable. 
But I believe that we're going to start to begin to understand the depths of his riches and wisdom and knowledge and how he is going to have mercy on everybody, ultimately. But we could do episode upon episode upon episode on Christian universalism because there's a lot of questions that come along with that. And remember, we talked about that paradox. There's a lot of paradoxes in the Bible. I know there's verses, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And and uh, just like anything, there's there's answers that can be given, but we don't have time in this episode because that, once again, dovetails into all sorts of new content. But I hope that this at least begins the conversation. I hope that this will allow people to think a little bit and and question, challenge this, challenge me, challenge yourself, challenge what you've been taught. Open this idea up a little bit and, you know, begin to to think outside the box as much as you possibly can. And when I say outside the box, I mean outside your own theological box because we all were put in a box. You know, everybody talks about putting God in a box. God's never been put in a box. We have put ourselves in boxes, and that's the problem. We're, we've got to think outside our own box that we've been put in. Well, and one of the things that appeals to me the most about this entire train of thought and this entire conversation that we have had is that this is good news. Yeah. I mean, dude, yeah. this is really good news. And like I said before, man, I'm, I'm tracking with you. I see where you're coming from. I see the points that can be made. And dude, I will gladly concede that this perspective of Christian universalism or hopeful universalism, whatever the, the label you want to put on it is, I, I it's, you can make a biblical argument for it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have Christians that that promote this idea. Well, you wouldn't have some of the earliest Christians believe it. Yeah, exactly. So that is something that it does resonate with me. I love this. And I guess you could say maybe I'm a hopeful, hopeful universalist. I mean, <laughs> this is this is something that I certainly... I'm a hopeful, hopeful universalist. Um, I mean, I certainly hope that this is the case. I really want to believe that this is the case. And I find myself ticking closer to that direction. I mean, I'm not there yet. And and this has been a great conversation. This has been a great discussion. It, it's helped provide a lot of clarity for me in, in a much more concise way than a lot of the materials I've read. And maybe when we get into some of these future topics going into the new year that, that dovetail in with this, maybe we can talk our, our good friend and brother David Artman into coming back on and maybe having another conversation with him about some of this. Yeah. Um, but but needless to say, I, I think that we've handled these questions well. And if I'm going to summarize, and if I and if I speak out of turn, or if I'm not exactly accurate with what you have said, just you know, feel free to to you know put a little correction in there. No, you're but, usually better at summarizing what I say than I am. So nah, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but in answering the question, if God will judge the hearts of those who have never heard about Jesus based upon the law written on their hearts, does this imply some sort of works based salvation? Well, no, it doesn't. Because while our works are something that emanates from our heart, our heart isn't always the driving factor of the behavior that we engage in. And God looks at the heart above all else. And in answering the second question, it seems that you're saying that this can be reduced down to nothing more than just be a good person and treat people right. And to a point, yes. I mean, it's hard for me to say this, but maybe John Lennon was right and love is all we need. Or maybe that was Burt Bacharach or Elvis Costello. I don't remember. Anyway, but someone said it, some great sage. But yeah, 
I mean, if Paul can say the entire law is fulfilled in keeping the commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself, and if Jesus says the entire law hangs on these commandments, love God and love neighbor, well, if we define what those terms mean scripturally, and and that's not a weasel word to weasel the way out and say, well, you got to have this doctrine, that doctrine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If loving God means loving God's image bearers well, which I think John bears that out in his epistles and even in his gospel, and if the scriptures bear this out and they promote this idea of loving neighbor as yourself, well then, yeah, this is loving people and treating people right. That is the essence of what the gospel is. Yeah, and I want to say one thing here too, because I feel like, I I don't know if I did this justice or not, But this is a very heavy concept, the idea that God is a God of cultural accommodation. Yes. And what most Christians—I won't say most—some Christians fail to recognize is that Christians throughout history have always related to God through their culture. That's the only way we can relate to God. The way we relate to God today is very, very different than the way people related to God a hundred years ago. <laughs> and no so doubt. to think that all Christians have related to God in the same way is it's it's very naive to argue that. Um when you look at even the Bible itself, up until the past two or three hundred years, the common person did not have access, direct access to scriptures. Uh, And even if they did, they would have not been literate enough to read it for themselves. So when we talk about how we relate to Scripture today, they related to Scripture in a very different way than we do today. And the reason why I bring all that up is because people have related to God through the years through animal sacrifice. They have related to God through temples. They have related to God through priests. They have related to God through communion meals. They have related to God through ritualistic practices. They have related to God through big church buildings. They have related to God in so many different ways. And in large part, it's through each person's culture. We are bound to serve God within the culture we live in. And and, and the the problem with this, we don't even realize it. Um, Because we are stuck in it, it seems like it's all there is without even realizing that in another hundred years, people are going to be following God in very different ways than we are as far as the way it manifests itself. But here is what remains the same. The fruit of the Spirit and love does no harm. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is not a list of rituals. That's yeah. why the, the that that's why it's not. Here's the fruit of the spirit. Do this. Do this. Do this. No. 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 It's these characteristics because the way those characteristics manifest themselves, it's going to be different from generation to generation, culture to culture, time period to time period. Those things are going to constantly change. How do we know? Because they've always changed. They've never remained the same. So there's no reason for me to believe that now, beginning in 2021, on uh, in December. Going forward, every Christian who ever hears about God is, is going to relate to him exactly the same way. That's not the case. But those characteristics, the heart characteristics, that should always be there. And so when people say, is that all there is to it? Yes, the fruit of the Spirit is all there is to it. And, and if you think that that's a all there is, then please teach me because I've got a long way to go in, in trying to— to, to to bear that fruit of the Spirit. I think that's going to take us a lifetime, and we're still not going to be able to, to completely have that fruit of the Spirit nailed down. But yeah, that 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 is what it's all about. But 
I get into this in my new book too <laughs> about cultural accommodation and and how we worship God and think about the animal sacrifice system and or the sa- animal sacrificial system and those types of things and, and and just how things have progressed even over the you know not just the past 2000 years even 50 60 70 years I mean things have just changed and and another 20 30 years Christianity is going to look very different than it does and but the fruit of the spirit that should remain the same that's how people should know that we 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 are our God's children. We are followers of Jesus because of the love we have for one another. And that right there is what gives Christianity its dynamism. That's what gives it its dynamic its impact. Yeah. That's what gives it its longevity. That's what allows us to remain a prevalent world religion for over 2000 years. I mean, as fractured as the church is along denominational lines and as divided as God's people are, there's still a measure of longevity there. I mean, the fact that this podcast has grown to what it is and the fact that there are so many other, you know, religious and Christian podcasts out there is a testament to that longevity. But one of the things that is so, I I love that point you made about the fruit of the spirit and the concept of love as, as it's defined in first Corinthians 13, those things don't change but how they are expressed and what they look like will evolve over time. And it has. And I, I mean, dude, this has been a wonderful conversation. We could just keep this going and just keep on rambling. Yeah, but we but have other things to talk please, about. Please, please. <laughs> um, you know, when you hear this, ask, keep sending questions in because we love this stuff. And as I said before, I may get fired up. I'm not discrediting anybody's questions. Sometimes I just get fired up on this stuff, but you know, we want, we want to chew on this and we want to chew on this with you because this is how we learn. This is how we grow. This is what prompts us to continue thinking and to continue to develop thoughts and understanding God and have a try to have a better understanding of who God is and a healthier relationship with God and the Bible and even one another. Absolutely. We love hearing from you guys and you guys give us a lot of the fodder that we have for our podcast. So if Kevin and I hit a, uh, I don't know if you call it a writer's block or if we start, you know, running into roadblocks as though, Hey, what are we going to talk about? Like, what are we going to discuss? Oh my, who knows? You guys provide us with that fuel that and whenever you reach out to us and you send us your questions or your statements, or you engage on the discussion board on Facebook, what that does is it lets us know where you are and what you guys are interested in. Because if Kevin and I just talked about what we were interested in, I know there are a lot of you that would be bored to tears. We want to talk about what you guys are interested in. We want to consider what you guys are interested in and give our perspective on it. And like Kevin said, we are not the experts. We are not putting ourselves out there as the experts. We're not propping ourselves up as being more knowledgeable than what we are, because I'll freely admit I'm a moron in so many ways and in so many more ways than just one. I'm just traversing these waters too. I'm trying to figure this out just like Kevin is, just like we all are. We're just swimming together in the same river, man. You know, and swimming that's, together. That's the we're, thing. we're, we're, f- Floating, baby. Floating down the river. That's it. Well, (laughs) we're exploring faith and we are pursuing grace and doing the best we can with what we have. And on that note, we're going to bid you all a good night. Thank you all once again for being such a wonderful audience. We love you all. We appreciate you all. Give us that five-star review on iTunes. Shoot us emails. Holler at us. Engage in the discussion on our Facebook discussion page. And we appreciate you all. And we'll see you all soon.